Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 14th, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. As we continue to observe, plan, and strategize in April around Earthquake Preparedness Month, we'll hear from UCI's Emergency Management Services and Whitney. And keeping it local as well as interesting, we'll also have the pleasure of hearing from Peter Ditto about a recently published article in the Science Magazine called Conservatives Report But Liberals Display Greater Happiness. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Any one of you feel that Inglewood 2.6 yesterday, the East Hemet 2.2, well, this early morning, well, get ready to feel some Richter scale five or uh, six readings with the urgency that with my first guest, Anne Whitney, she'll be bringing to this show. Anne Whitney is the emergency services manager at UCI, a position she's assumed nearly two years ago after her work as the business continuity planner, and that's got all, everything to do with emergencies. Prior to work at UCI, Anne held positions in public health and emergency preparedness with the Dallas County Department of Health and Human Services, the Washington State Department of Health and Los Angeles County Department of Health, Public Health. Anne completed her bachelor's in community health education from California State University, Northridge, her master's in emergency management from Jacksonville State University, and her master's in public health from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Anne's Office of Emergency Services, so everybody gets this jurisdictional thing all set up here, is a division of the UCI Police Department. The Office of Emergency Services is tasked with the overall emergency operations, planning, and continuity of operations and planning for the campus. The office is also responsible for emergency management, training, planning, and coordination, and implementation of all FEMA, California Emergency Management Agency, and Orange County operational related activities. So we all know what the charts are generally looking like. She's here to do us some major favors and to be relied upon to think about everything, everything we don't consider. She joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ann Whitney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are glad you are here because uh, awareness doesn't happen just in April. It's a year-long thing. The shakedown, of course, happens in October, but this was designated. It's nationally. Everybody's talking about it and trying to improve, deepen awareness in April. Yes, April is designated as Earthquake Preparedness Month, and so we are trying to continue the message of preparedness and readiness here on campus and for everyone to uh, be prepared at home as well. So what score, I mean, really, we're going to be rigorous today. Uh, what score would you give the operational management coordination scene for UCI? Because you've, you've been a lot of different agencies at this point, Anne. I think that we do a number of things very well here on campus. We're very proactive with our emergency operations plans. We have a exceedingly uh, lengthy list of special teams that we train and plan for 
on campus. We have a damage assessment team. We have a care and shelter team if we need to establish a shelter on campus. And we have a number of department operations centers that are trained and can activate to support our campus emergency operations center. Okay, so uh, some the, are those centers where civilians can go and uh, you know pick up literature, uh, l- uh, look at your your test, uh, your uh, example hazard uh, preparation. So those centers supplies? are only activated in an emergency okay, and during a training. So the best place to actually get additional information is to contact the police department or come and see me on campus. We have a number of resources that are specific to both the university as well as personal preparedness. Are you getting traffic in your office? People say a little bit. Uh, where are you? Are you at the PD? Mm-hmm. Okay, right there at Pereira and the uh, California Peltasen Pereira. Pereira. Yes, exactly. So, um, I I guess let's open with the really kind of dire news that sort of uh, shook me down when Lisa Grant Ludwig was hosting a sort of an update um, with Dana Rohrbacher, is, is an invited uh, guest, Congre- Congressman Dana Rohrbacher. It was just before summer began last year. Uh, earthquake superstar analyst Dr. Lucy Jones of the U.S. Geological Services reminded everyone in the last, the last of the major earthquakes that we had here in Southern California was in the early 1990s, where this was before the internet had become such the deal of where everything's transacted. This is important now when we consider that the supply chain for everything we consume is organized over the internet. So she talks about food and water supplies that uh, could just run out in a day. Uh, what not? She's not talking anymore about the three-day supply mm-hmm. kit. She's talking into the month. So let's let's talk about how um, we can't any of us be overly stocked for this that could happen at at any day at any time. That is very true. The old recommendations from FEMA and other government agencies used to be to have a three-day supply of water and food and toiletries, other sanitary supplies, and now as an emergency manager and reading up on a lot of the literature out there, a lot of the Uh, Guidance really has changed to be at least 14 days, and if not, you know, six weeks, two months, depending on where you're at and what type of community you live in. If you live in a um, very rural area versus a very urban area, that changes some of the recommendations. But for us in California, knowing that we are sort of on that brink of potentially experiencing that catastrophic earthquake, we do need to be ready, and we need to have at least a gallon of water per person per day. And that also should include your pets and um, other non-perishable foods to sustain you for at least two weeks, if not longer. Okay. that's So that is the, it's not new. It's just maybe a more recently advised yes. kind of situation. Well, I guess Let's just look at the residential before we go to maybe some institutional settings here is because I I want for all listeners to to follow in here. So let's take a tour of the home, the car, the uh, the workplace in terms of what it looks like. Everybody should have available. And you talk generally about that. 
And I want to remind all of ourselves that what it's not just that we have it, but we need to have it stored in a place where it's not destroyed mm -hmm. during the disaster. Absolutely. So let's go look, let's go walk through a house. And so what needs to be available? And I have some sort of supplemental suggestions too for things that might be longer or might extend the supplies that we have. So go, uh, go ahead. Absolutely. So for the home, you definitely have to take into consideration the type of environment that you live in. Do you live in a single family home? Do you live in an apartment complex, a condo? I recommend if you live in a single family home to actually maintain your supplies at either in your garage or outside in a shed or somewhere where it can still be um, waterproof and safe from the elements. But the garage, that's where my stuff is. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any guarantee where I put it. It's uh, that it's not going to just get smashed. So where's where is your in your garage, where do you have your supplies? I have it um, right as you go in the garage door. It's on the right-hand side. All my supplies are in a five-gallon, like, Rubbermaid tin okay. or tub. Um, some people like to have um, rolling trash cans, depending on the size of your family, the more supplies you're going to have. So a rolling bin makes it a little bit more accessible and easy to maneuver. So for me, because I live in a townhouse, the uh, right towards the edge of the garage is the best place. Okay, I, mine's against the wall, the outer wall of the garage, mm -hmm. near the garage door. Yeah. Okay, yep. all right, good. Well, and um, I, I can't help resist this. We know about the water set aside, and I was thinking, that I, I use this as a sort of benign housekeeping supply, but I thought that vinegar could be a way to, it doesn't need to be replaced like water does, and it could be used to extend the water in terms of a, a sort of a, a sanitary kind of solution. Is that something, do we have substitutes like that that you suggest? So I haven't heard that about vinegar, but I've heard that about bleach. Okay. So you can use um, one part bleach, nine parts water to actually use um, as a cleaning aid to sanitize, and then you can use 16 drops of bleach in a gallon of water to actually make it so you can drink it. So you can use bleach to kind of purify water. Okay. Okay, I think for purifying, I'm just thinking of instead of using precious water for uh, just rinsing off something, just use that vinegar. Oh, and absolutely. You, and you don't have aid. to ro rotate that stock ever. It's a it's a constant thing. So that's that's just one thing that occurred to me. So, so that's the home. And while we're still in the home, not a supply, but a, a sort of disaster sort of survival. Let's just debunk that myth, or if it is one, about where to position yourself in the home when the shakes happen. Absolutely. So as soon as you feel the ground start shaking, the best thing to do is to get underneath a table, a desk, some sort of sturdy object, and drop cover and hold on. If you're unable to do that, you still want to drop and cover and protect your head and neck. So the old myth used to be to stand in a doorway, and uh, that is not the recommendation anymore. The uh, stair or the doorway isn't necessarily the safest place in the house, and the door j could actually close and jam your hand or your fingers, depending on how you're holding on. So that's not the recommendation. It's always to drop, cover, and hold on. And the the uh, what was it the triangle of survival? Is the that triangle a myth too? Of life. That is a myth. That really. Um, 
was a theory that came about uh, many years ago and still seems to be uh, out there. But again, the the risk of building collapses here in California is fairly low. We have very high building standards. And so again, the, the best thing for you to do is find a desk, table, some sort of object that you can get under and to protect your head and neck and hold on till the shaking stops. Okay, that was a, a different topic, but we're, it was because we're still in the home. I wanted to make the most of that. Um, any other kind of item in the home that you're noticing people just keep forgetting that conclude in their supplies? Absolutely. So the most important thing is to consider the makeup of your family and your roommates. So do you have elderly parents that live at home with you that have particular uh, medication needs or medical supplies that they need like oxygen? Do you have pets that might need food and extra water and treats? I know my dogs would get pretty angry if I didn't have a stockpile of treats for them in my emergency kit. And anyone with a disability access or functional need, if you have an infant or toddler, what are the special considerations for the various members of your family, roommates, etc.? So that's probably the most important thing that's overlooked is what are the specifics that you need for your household. Wow, with the infant, and if you're lactating, mm-hmm. you're going to go Diapers. through keeping clean. Keep it's just, I I think it goes beyond where our imagination takes us. How how yeah. much is necessary mm-hmm. for um, preparing? So uh, that's the house. There may be some other things. We can go back to that. Then the the car, and uh, there were some other suggestions I've seen uh, that savvy uh, individuals have imparted to me. What do you want to see in everybody's car? So I have a, um, a f- collapsible crate that I have in the back of my car, and it's filled with a first aid kit, paper towels, baby wipes, trash bags, an extra pair of sneakers, their sturdy shoes, a poncho, some extra water. I do have, because I have two dogs, I have leashes and collars, some extra dog food for them so that if for some reason I needed to quickly leave my house or leave wherever I'm at, I have a good start at being able to just get on the road, evacuate, get where I need to go, throw my dogs in the car, and we would have enough supplies to take care of us for a while. And what I learned from the uh, Red Cross people is the what's your tank? I know when I last met you, you were very, uh, very convincing that you maintain that standard. What do listeners need to remember? I, I think mine is at about one third, but I, th- I think of you actually every time I look at mine. Yes, so I do. I get gas every Saturday, whether I need it or not. And I try to not let my gas tank ever get below half a tank. It's just a habit that I've cultivated and... I have friends and family that make fun of me for it, but I really do try to make sure that I always have a full tank of gas and I never let it go below half a tank. Well, they're they're not going to laugh when you're the one that's best. They're going to dive for your uh, your resources. And we talked about that. We're talking about both the house and the car. There's also that bit about being self-sufficient with cash. Absolutely. What is this the suggested? kind of cash to have? Yeah, so mixed denominations and coins, I keep 
anywhere from $20 to $40 typically in my car. I have fives and ones and a lot of quarters. The idea is if we're in an extended power outage after a major earthquake, some sort of scenario where ATMs don't work, you can't access your bank, you're stuck with whatever cash you have on hand to get necessary services, get yourself out of town, and it's just a good idea to have, I would say, probably in that $40 range, but it could be more if you have the thinking. financial means to have a couple hundred dollars stashed away for emergency purposes. I think that's a great idea. But still in small denominations. Yes, small denominations. Just, unless you're interested in tipping and running out of your cash. Yeah. Ah, well, for those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned into KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. It's Ask a Leader. We're streaming worldwide on the web with the seismic zones all over the world at KUCI.org. And my guest is UCI Emergency Manager Ann Whitney, paying us a visit during Earthquake Awareness Month. So we're talking about what we need in the house and in the car. Are you, do you have supplies at your office? I do. So everybody at their workplace, that's station number three. So what do you keep there? So I have a paint bucket, actually, that I have filled with water, a flashlight, a glow stick, a whistle. Um, I do also keep a sturdy pair of shoes under my desk. I, like a lot of ladies, wear heels every day. But if we're in an emergency situation, I want to make sure I have sturdy shoes so that I can do my job or evacuate if I have to. Um, I also actually tape underneath my desk a glow stick and a whistle. So I have that taped if for some reason the power goes out and I'm trapped or I can't find my flashlight, there isn't enough ambient light, I can crack that glow stick and use that to get to my supplies or to get safely out of the building. What's, where do we get the glow sticks? That's, uh, that's missing in my supplies. So I actually order them on Amazon. Typically, if you are on campus for some of our preparedness events, I give away a few every um, fair that we do. So if people come and can tell me the type of supplies that they have in their emergency preparedness kits or the type of things that they should have in their kits, then typically I do give a few of those away. But they're very reasonably priced. They have five-year shelf life, and it's a, it's a great thing to add in your kit. So another reminder to rotate the stock. Mm -hmm. Everything has, I guess that would be the list that how often you have to rotate those things inside your container. You can yes. review it and know what the uh, tear uh, date for everything yes. from the water to the glow stick. I think one of the things I do is I mark everything with a Sharpie of the date that I put it into my kit. Wow. And so that way I know this can of tuna was put in in April of 2005. I actually had something that was many years old that I needed to rotate out. And so for me, it serves as a reminder. So when I look at it, I try to coincide it with the time change. So twice a year, okay. just as you change out the batteries of your smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors, you also take a look at your kit and see uh, what is time to rotate out. Okay. So this made me think, too. Um, I haven't heard. I finally got for myself and my children the hand-cranking radio. Yes. That that I could get really only... I got sort of a little bidding war going with the uh, online sales for my clock. So is that something you also use? I do. I have a hand crank NOAA weather radio. So yes. you can obviously tune into AM and FM stations like KUCI in yes, an emergency. Indeed. Right. And you can also get uh, NOAA weather alerts in an emergency. 
and mine has the solar panel, but I don't think that's going to be too reliable because I guess you, you need 12 hours of uninterrupted sun to power that whole thing up, With uh, but you can always crank it. Some products are better than others. That isn't something we've talked about, but you can purchase solar-powered cell phone chargers and yes. other um, device chargers, so I do have a couple of those in my stockpile, both for the campus and at home as well. But I know some before I was getting prepared last night with the show, I went into my trunk I keep it in the trunk because I'm I'm probably going to be near the near the it's either at my house it's the car is parked at the house or I'm out in the car somewhere else I'm mm-hmm. my I don't have anything in my bicycle so that that might behoove me to put a little something in there at all times but anyway I noticed that everything's completely dead on my solar powered crank powered mm-hmm. radio so that has to be recharged again and, and mine's got the USB port in it which yours Good. does yes. too yes so you could charge I don't know how long it would take for me to you would probably up. get enough of a charge to you know be able to send out a text message to someone to you know charge your phone just enough that you could get an emergency message out which might be all you need mm-hmm. okay well for those of you who just joined us we have the pleasure and the urgency of having UCI emergency manager and Whitney during Earthquake Awareness um, Month, Preparedness Awareness. And uh, we're talking, we're moving about the home, the car, the office place. Now, I guess we could get a bit institutional. Uh, will the, in Ways Goose uh, uh, Festival that we're going to have this weekend, are you going to have some kind of booth? I actually am not going to have a booth. Oh, they should just break a leg and just give you a table. Because that's your opportunity to fan out big time. Well, maybe you can... Uh, check in. That is a good idea. The next time that we are having an outreach is for the UCI walks and the faculty and staff wellness fair. And so we will have a booth for that in May. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure you could be allowed one table for that or just stake it out there. Put on your vest and just go walk around. Fi- oh, I well, I would think that would be a really good time to uh, to do that. So uh, what uh, you were talking about generally buildings in California are pretty seismically uh, reinforced. Uh, how is the campus? I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to tell us what your favorite child is. What What's the best building? To well, I don't know that I with? could say there's a, a best building, but all of the buildings on campus have either been built to code or structurally reinforced to code. And so at uh, this point, what we believe is that every building on campus would be able to withstand a six to a 6.5 earthquake. And we believe that um, all of our buildings are meeting the standard for um, structural design and engineering. Okay, so 6.5. It could go over that. So the fingers get crossed with the engineering uh, staff there. Okay, so we've knocked off some myths uh, about, you know, in the home or something like that. But students, are you suggesting that when they're about campus, what they need to bring with them, keep in their backpack? I mean, that's like your handbag, your your, your car. But, yeah, absolutely. But they've got their, lots of them are commuting by car. Lots of them are near their dorm. So and just sort of walking around. I think when you're just walking around campus, it's never a bad idea to have a small first aid kit, something that you could fit in a little Ziploc pouch and put in your backpack an extra bottle of water and a granola bar. So an incident like the secure in place that we had a couple weeks ago, if that had been an extended incident, we want to make sure that everyone that is secured in their office or in a classroom, they're going to be taken care of. So it's always a good idea to have extra water and an extra snack to sustain you through any extended incidents on campus. So as 
we look at the the remainder of the month, you talked about there will be some awareness kinds of offerings at UCI Walks and the, the Wellness Fair in May. But mm-hmm. for the remainder of the month, what have you planned? And we'll, we'll give you a chance to give us all the websites that people need to be having available. They Absolutely. can pull it up but and apps and that kind of a thing. But what is there anything right on campus that you're going to be doing for the remainder so of this month? So there aren't any in-person events, but we do have a number of blog posts. We do uh, weekly informational posts on preparedness and ways to make sure that you're ready both here on campus and at home. And uh, we will give a list of all those sites at the end. So we also do a number of educational opportunities. We have presentations that people can request. So I'm available. We have officers that are available to do active shooter presentations. Um, Personal preparedness is one that I offer. So we're available to come to talk to any student, staff, or faculty group on campus. Okay. So they can reach you how to set that up. So the best way would be to give me a call. My phone number is 949 Eight two four seven one four seven, or they can send me an email at a w i d n e y at uci dot edu. Okay, so anybody, mm-hmm. no no groups too small. Absolutely, a residence uh, on campus. The, I imagine you've been up to University Hills a couple of times mm-hmm. by now. I yep. know that Barbara Taborik and others are always watching out for nearby residents mm-hmm. to have these preparedness. And I think there's there's people doesn't. And you're also getting uh, sort of team leaders for every department around the school. So are you getting what kind of percentage response rate for people? Yeah, so we have, um, we actually divide the campus into zones, into what we call the campus zone crew. So we have 13 zones. Every zone has a zone captain, and beneath that, every building has a building coordinator, and every floor of every building has floor wardens. So these are our preparedness teams, if you will, that are responsible to help evacuate a building or help secure or shelter in place during an emergency on campus. So... The initial reaction is, oh, not another burden on my job description, but what you're here to tell us is that we'll be so glad when the big one shakes mm-hmm. that's, that everything is in place and the continuity that is part of the job description for you, yes. that continuity is intact. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, we are a small city. We have upwards of forty to 50,000 people on campus on any given day. We have public services. We have a clinic. We have a number of um, different departments and schools that are represented here. We have a very diverse student staff and faculty here. So we want to make sure that as a city, you know, as UCI, that we are ready and able to respond, but most importantly, recover after any type of incident that impacts the campus. Oh, that's great. Glad to hear that. And so we have a number of websites to uh, direct people to and apps. I mean, everybody, I'm sure it's Zot Alerts are probably a very automatic kind of setup for incoming students and new employees. So that that probably is not a problem. So just in case, the website to sign up for Zot Alert is oit.uci.edu slash Zot Alert. And Zot Alerts are the first means that we have to get in touch with the campus community. So anytime you receive that text message, we will be providing to you a protective action 
based on the information that we know at that time. So it's very important to pay attention to those ZOD alerts. And it was active and well in the, you called an active shooter. That means somebody who has a gun and you're, they're moving about. Well, that, that was two weeks ago. It was a secure in place. We noticed someone with a gun. Okay. So they weren't actively oh, shooting. Oh, that's, oh, of course, that is an important distinction. So that's one. Is, is there some kind of a, an emergency application for people to put on? So we do. We have for iPhone users, we have the Zot Finder app, which is an interactive map to actually help you find your way around campus from building to building. But then it also contains all of the emergency procedures for the campus. So if you need to locate an assembly area, how to handle a bomb threat, a fire, an earthquake, all of that information is contained in that ZotFinder app. And for other non-iPhones? So for non-iPhone users, we're working on an Android version of that same app. I don't have a release date, but we are hoping to get that out within the next few months. Okay. And then there's, for all residents and affiliated people, there's your website with the, uh, and I can put that up there, sites.uci.edu forward slash emergency management so people can look at a mock-up of evacuation plan mm -hmm. and all the lists and ready.gov gives everybody a complete listing of what supplies are necessary yes and i guess multiply that times 14 mm -hmm. <laughs> to as much sure. as you can afford to stockpile and have room we recommend because if you don't have it uh, or and i don't know um i i I'm I'm not going to go where somebody went with the how they're going to keep their stash theirs. But it's a <clears throat> well, that's about time we have today for the show. I want to thank you, uh, Ann Whitney, for coming in studio. This is Ann Whitney here today with me, at emergency services manager at UCI, sending us packing, and that is preparing for the big one or the the other ones. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, we'll be right back after a station break. And we're going to talk with Peter Ditto, psychology social behavior professor, to talk about his recent publication with John Wojcik entitled Conservatives Report, But Liberals Display Greater Happiness. Be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. I think nothing does it like Brahms' First Symphony to set the kind of uh, a tone here for those kind of solemn things. Like what a disaster it would be. It would feel pretty darn solemn, I'm thinking. Well, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Peter Ditto, UCI psychology and social behavior professor with some very inter interesting findings that he's recently published with doctoral student Sean Vojcik. Arpin Hovasepian, Jesse Graham, and Matt uh, Tzmodil. I hope I've got your names all correctly pronounced, but it's Peter Ditto that will be uh, the interview with this publication. It's the definitive work entitled Conservatives Report, But Liberals Display Greater Happiness, published this last month in Science Magazine. Uh, a self-described surf bum, Peter Ditto completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at UCLA and both his Master's and his PhD in Psychology at Princeton University. And after a fellowship at University of Michigan and a, an extensive teaching stint at, at Kent State, Peter Ditto joined UCI in 1997. And as a social 
psychologist with expertise in the area of human judgment and decision making. His research focuses on what he calls hot cognition, how our motivations and emotions shape even bias our social, political, moral, medical, and legal judgments, often to our peril, he will say. Welcome uh, to Ask a Leader, Peter Ditto. Thanks for having me, Claudia. Well, I um, I just want to start with, I remember kind of an amusing little thing I heard. When I was in Belfast some 20 years ago, uh, listening to a BBC broadcast, which opened with this line, Americans want to be happy, and the British want to be right. So happy is the uh, is the sort of value that that Peter Ditto at all have been working on extensively with this meta data analysis. So when Sean Vochik and you began this pretty definitive study, which comprises there's three different studies in all with this, so that you know you're working out all the biases and all. What uh, was your null hypothesis? What were you trying to disprove, Peter Ditto? Well, um, essentially, there's been a a number of scientific studies and public opinion polls conducted over the last several years showing that political conservatives uh, are more likely to report being happy than political liberals. Now, this ideological happiness gap has gotten a fair amount of attention. Some people even suggesting it supports the value of conservative political policies. That the limitation of the data are really that uh, they're all based on self-reports of happiness, people simply saying how, whether or not they're happy, whether they're satisfied with their life. And, of course, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It's a perfectly reasonable way to measure happiness. Uh, but self-reports have limitations, things like response biases, uh, one of the most important of those being that people's tendency to report things in a way that reflects positively on themselves. So our logic was that if conservatives' reports of happiness were really real happiness, it should show up in their behavior as well, something we could look at without their knowledge. So my student, Sean Wojcik, who really led this project, this is part of his dissertation. In fact, he's, a doc- he's Dr. Wojcik now. Oh, good. Uh, Congratulations. You know, he had this clever idea of looking at online behavior using a kind of big data sort of approach. So in, in brief, we looked at two different types of happiness-related behavior, whether or not People use positive emotional words and uh, their smiling behavior, how intensely and genuinely they smile in photographs. And we looked at various samples of liberals conservatives using words in the congressional record, pictures of senators and congressional representatives, and found that there was a small but consistent tendency for liberals to actually behave more happily than conservatives. So conservatives report being happier, but liberals seem to display more happiness, which suggests that it, there's that the conservative advantage in happiness is limited to self-reports, which really changes the way you think about it. Uh, you know, that you've got one kind of data suggesting that that conservatives are happier, and another kind of data suggesting that liberals might be happier. And that's really, I mean, I think our study is not so much definitive as it raises a lot of questions about what's the, you know, how do you measure happiness, and what does it mean if you get two different indicators that suggest different things. Well, I guess you could say it's definitive in disproving the the earlier assumption that uh, that self-reporting is effective. Well, that's a, that's a tricky question because it's, uh, people want to jump to the conclusion that, the, that behavior is some sort of objective indicator of happiness. But that's not, we, we wouldn't say that at all. In fact, it's perfectly reasonable to, if somebody, if you want to know how happy somebody is, it's perfectly reasonable to, to ask them, well, how happy are you? Right? Yeah. And how happy they say they are seems like a good way to go about it. And, we, and there's lots of data that suggests that's a, that that has some implications. But there's also problems, right? There's also this sense of people, and what we've shown in other, what Sean particularly has shown in other research, is that 
reports of happiness are, 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 can be biased by people's desire to present themselves positively. Right. So people who are, you know, want to self-enhance themselves, want to present themselves positively, report being happier. And so that's, that's a problem with it. Well, I liked in your opening, too, that you're talking about another sort of um, explanation for why the conservatives are self-reporting. It's a protective uh, defensive mechanism that serves the palliative function. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, uh, that's the, the sort of interesting underlying aspect of these data is sort of why the self-reports are problematic for in a political context. And it, and it might be true in other contexts as well, but in this one, what we found before in, in other data is that conservatives, political conservatives, the more politically conservative you are, the more self-enhancing people are. So the more there's a there's this wonderful test called the better than average test. So if you ask people how you know whether they're uh, you know better than average at some ability like driving ability, you know something like eighty or ninety percent of the people will say that they're better than average drivers, okay. uh, which can't really be possible. It's some sort of self-enhancing. Everybody thinks they're better than average, and conservatives show that effect more than liberals do. Okay. And so there's a sense in which they have a different sort of reporting style. They tend to be self-confident, self-enhancing. They tend to report positive things about themselves where liberals don't. And that could, that, that, that could be a, what, what we're showing is that seems to be you know, biasing their self-reports of happiness. So just because they say they're happier doesn't really mean they're happier. So you have three different studies that uh, Ershan has done with the study, with the overall uh, findings. You break it down with first about the, uh, the self-reporting, um, the groups, then, and you work then with the congressional metadata analysis of how the congressional members present. You said photographs, so these, aren't, these are stills. They're not motion um, Correct. images, and that, that might change a few things, too. Um, and then uh-huh. and, and what they're... What they're tweeting, you went through this massive amount of, uh, of words to, to match up uh, the values for what would uh, essentially register level of happiness. So I, I was wondering if you controlled a bit for who's in the majority. Does that, does a happiness start, if you're in, if you're in power, if you're in the majority, is there, is, is that, doesn't that color disposition? Did you control sure. for that? Uh, yeah, so in a, in a variety of different ways. So the, part of what, what we're saying is that all data has problems, has limitations. So you know, that's the claim that we're making about self-report data, but then the, we want to look and make sure that our own data is based on a lot of different things. So one thing we did was looked at the uh, congressional record, uh, right. you know, looked at all the words and showed that liberals use more uh, positive words than conservatives do, and that when we looked at each of their pictures of, of the entire 113th Congress, show that liberals in those pictures seem to smile. We code those pictures in a in a very rigorous way to show that whether yes. and conservative and liberals smile more than conservatives do, and smile in a more genuine way, in a more it's kind of it's this eye smiling way. Oh, now, please, please the ask. first thing you might ask is, yeah, sure, sure, they're happy because they're in power. Uh, and so we control for that, you know, statistically in some ways. But we also want to show that it's not just conserv- it's not just congressional members that show this. But if you take tweets down, people who follow the liberal and uh, the Democratic and Republican Party, and and then we take their uh, you know 25 uh, most frequent tweets of those people. Uh, you know, we grab a bunch of those people and look at their tweets. Then those tweets aren't about politics necessarily, and they show the same effects. 
So they show that, that, that liberals are, are saying more happy things. The other, the other part of it is that we, we also replicate the self-report data. So we also replicate that if, we, if you ask people how happy they are, conservatives report being happier than liberals do. And those are collected during exactly the same time when, when President Obama has been president. And so if, if it's just because liberals are happier because uh, you know, uh, Obama is the president, well, then that should show up in the self-reports as well. But we still show the conservatives report more, being more happy, but the behaviorally the liberals display more happiness. So that really doesn't. So it doesn't fit with. You know, can't really be explained by just the fact that they're in, that, that that liberals might be in the majority right now. So where did you start this uh, study? Actually, I didn't um, get. I didn't get an appreciation for what what period this began when the, you began collecting the data and collecting smiles, tweets, and everything else. Well, it's all been within the last couple of years. I mean, again, we go back. So there's some another another study we do is we we replicate the. Uh, Picture data with LinkedIn pictures. So we take the go to the you know the, the website LinkedIn, and we have people who work for either uh, a set of conservative companies or a set of uh, liberal companies and organizations, and we take down their pictures and we look at those as well and code those. And again, we see that liberals show more intense and more genuine smiling behavior. Again, all the, now some of that may have gone back a few years. We don't know when they picked those pictures, but uh-huh. all the data has been collected within within this sort of uh, period of time, really, when Obama's been president. Well, and I, I've had a, a body language analyst on my show a couple of years ago, and I was just checking what she had to say. It's not just about first impressions, but just sort of lingering body indicators. Mm-hmm. And, and she talked about there's a sort of a multicultural variation in what muscles are used in smiles, or whether a person smiles at all. But I'm thinking that might not affect so much your study too of congressional aides because congressional members because they're it's a pretty homogeneous cultural population so it's we don't have much diversity that way to to read what muscles are are being activated to register a genuine sort of indication of happiness correct well there could be a little bit of bias there in the sense we could we control for the statistically but uh, let's say and I you know the day women tend to smile a bit more than than men do Tend to use more emotional language than men do. Uh, you know, there, again, there are there are demographic differences in Congress between liberals and conservatives. We try to control for as many of those as we can. And we've replicated this over. We've also replicated all those data across the last. Sean's gone back for 18 years uh, wow. and gone and shown that even again in the past you see the same uh, tendency for liberals to use more positive words. Uh, you know, we don't get the smiling data that far back. But, you know, this seems to be a very general tendency for this kind of the, the, the use of positive language for, for liberals. And it, so, it's, so it's, I, it seems to be robust across these groups. But one of the things that, again, Sean's been particularly interested in is anytime you're comparing, there's been a lot of work uh, trying to, you know, to take data like these and say, well, we should really be comparing how uh, this, this notion of gross national happiness, that so we really shouldn't be comparing countries on their economic productivity, but on their happiness levels. And then whenever you're doing that, whenever you're comparing one group to another uh, based on how happy they report being, you need to consider that many of these groups may difference in how self-enhancing they are as well. So Americans, for example, Western cultures tend to be more self-enhancing than than do Eastern cultures. And so if you're getting happiness differences, it may not really reflect real happiness. It It may just reflect the way that they're reporting using the scale. All right, so it's not that good of an indicator over 
uh, an international measure then? Well, it's always it's a it's a problem. You have to when it, it, can people want to go from almost in the happiness literature they they tend to rely almost exclusively on self reports, and it makes sense. You can see why they would do right, that. Right. Easy to get, but those are have certain problems, and one of those is this this tendency to self enhance will will change the way people answer those kinds of questions. Well, I want to just let everybody know, for those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming around the world on the web uh, where happiness is happening or not uh, on KUCI.org. And my guest is UCI psychology and social behavior professor Peter Ditto with an interesting shakedown about how conservatives and liberals register and report and uh, show their happiness. So it's a study three. It's the liberal and conservative members of the general public. That uh, you've indicated, sort of uh, made mention a little bit of that, inferred so with your findings there. But that's that's still tracking along with your first two groups, especially group study group two, the congressional members. Yeah, I mean, that was, so it was important for us to show that it isn't just politics. So we went first to politicians just because that's a, such an interesting sample yeah. of, you know, our most prominent liberals and conservatives. But they, they're very different from other people. And the pictures that they pick are, you know, for display and the, the words that they say in Congress aren't natural words. And so we, it was important for us to try to show it in other ways, to show that everyday people who aren't really in a political context will show that, that these same sorts of effects, that liberals just tend to use more positive words, smile more uh, intensely than to conservatives. And again, those effects are very small, too. So I think, I mean, it's, it's important that we're only not arguing that liberals are happier. We're arguing that, you've got, you know, everybody needs to, to slow down a little bit you yes. know, and not go from the self-report to some conclusion that, oh, you know, we should promote certain kinds of policies to promote happiness. You know that it's not—it's not as clear as you would think that 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 uh, conservatives uh, you know, are happier. That there's that there's some indications that there's some problems with the self-report data, and that there's other data that suggests that the, the picture is more complex. It really raises some philosophical questions about you know what is happiness? Is it what you say, or is it what you do, and uh, or is it some combination of both? Right. How, or how I'm not, or how you feel. Well, I'm not sure. I go directly, Peter Ditto, to a policy arena, but just sort of. How about just a, a general kind of intellectually honest conversation? Just sort of a, a a coverage of that, an examination, a public examination of that, before we get to policy. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that again, we're treating this as as scientists who are interested in in both measurement issues and in the psychology of liberals and conservatives. And so, um, you know, we're, you know, some of our conclusions are simply these methodological ones that you need to be careful. And the really interesting stuff to me is to try to sort out, well, to, you know, what, what sort of different behavioral and, and uh, you know, emotional tendencies do liberals and conservatives have? What does it tell you about, the, you know, the way they act and, uh, you know, how similar or different they are from one another? And I think maybe in another level of conversation is it's a, maybe a kind of a journalistic method a kind of training to reach to at to a deeper extent what's going on with what's being projected so that the journalist is more effective too <laughs> so the, the journalist is more effective at sort of describing the at understanding sort of the the authenticity of what is being uh, meted out in the you know the public domain that kind of thing that's what i was thinking of so 
you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I think that it's any, you know, science has to make assumptions, has to make shortcuts to get to data. And so, you know, if you've got people reporting that they're happy, boy, that's great. You can only get those kind of measures. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough enough to get people to complete things like that. And, and you're going to get a much broader picture from looking at, you know, more than one kind right. of measure, more exactly. than one kind of, you know, treatment of, of uh, you know, lens into, into these problems. And, of course, the picture gets more complicated. You know, that's, that, you know, that's the problem. You know, simple, one measure, you get a simple answer. Multiple things, you very often get a complicated uh, uh, pattern of, of data that, that is, you know, tells the story better but is harder to kind of uh, put into a little nutshell. I don't mean that the journalists are generating a method, just that your, that your content informs journalists about going deeper with their coverage and sure. uh, assessing the authenticity of the message. So, uh, and back to study two, and likely study group three, the congressional uh, constituents as well as the general public and organizations. I, I noticed, I think, no, I'm not special in this way, that the, the campaign rhetoric, the talking points are framed with much more discipline with the conservative members of Congress. Does that sort of locking in and stating the same thing over and over again, do you think that colors what their indicators of happiness are or the lack of authenticity of, I mean, of the, the lack of frank happiness that's coming mm -hmm. through? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. Again, why we wanted to have lots of different kinds of data, not just politicians, but other people. And uh, that obviously what people, what politicians say, and even the pictures that they choose to represent them, isn't necessarily what, how they feel or you know, what they truly believe. Um, and there may be even some differences. There may be some that, you know, liberals may be more comfortable, and we're, we're exploring some of these things now, that yes. liberals uh, may, uh, you know, kind of be more comfortable presenting a happy face, and conservatives want to present a more restrained, kind of stronger face. Again, and that, you know, that kind of, um, you know, more self-confident, uh, you know, because you know, smiling actually can be a sign of weakness, to a certain extent, right? It's both a sign, of, a sign of friendliness, but it's also a sign of, well, I'm being vulnerable a little bit. And so you may find some differences, and it's kind of interesting to pursue those. Again, that's why we wanted to look not just at smiling, but word use, not just at politicians, but at real, you know, regular people in a kind of a semi-non-political context to try to generalize this to, their, to the, the general personality tendencies of, of liberals and conservatives. And, and Peter Ditto, I'm thinking of a particularly the climate change topic that the the conservative, I'd say Republican too, because it's sort of mm -hmm. interchangeable, that climate change, I know there is an, we all know there's an orthodoxy in the conservative thinking that of, of denying the human activities influencing climate change. So there's this very disciplined talking point about that and we know that behind that orthodoxy there really is a variance of opinion it's but there's a disciplined response though to climate change and i think the, their liberal counterparts understand that climate change is a force that is occurring and with very adverse impacts and so I, i'm just wondering if that their range of the the liberal coverage of climate change, if that's a topic that shows the difference in uh, 
sort of how how much is being activated in their physique to sort of affirm what they're actually saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the, at a broader level, one of the things that, that my lab's really interested in yes. is these differences or, or similarities between liberals and conservatives. Is there some sense that conservatives maybe are more, uh, because they're more self-confident, they're you know, less likely to admit mistakes or you know, more likely to embrace data that seem to support their views, like about climate change and, or, or not. Interestingly, we've just done a big study where we did what's called a meta-analysis, where we looked across all sorts of studies, as many studies we could find that look at political bias, whether people sort of accept information that confirms their beliefs more than information that doesn't. And, and we compared liberals and conservatives, the idea, well, gee, are, maybe, you know, that are liberals and conservatives equally biased, or is one group more biased than the other? And what we found across these it was 38 different studies we could find, wow. was that the, the level of bias was exactly the same in liberals and conservatives. That, that that conservatives are, are you know, liberals are just in, as biased in the liberal direction as conservatives are in the conservative direction. We all now, like our echo chambers. Yeah, we all like our echo chambers. Now people differ on how they evaluate that. Well, you know, the liberal they may, a liberal might think that their own bias is sort of a a, a positive, benign bias, and conservatives that's this kind of evil or you know more detrimental bias. And and that's a, those are completely valid questions about who's right. Uh, who's more, but people, you can actually be biased in the direction of being right, right? So, so even though, I mean, I firmly believe that the, the data on and, and, um, climate change, it's possible for me to be still, you know, kind of take data that's, uh, you know, not very good data and say, oh, yeah, that really supports my view. And, I, and so even though I'm ultimately right, I'm still sort of eager to accept information about what I believe and biased in the favor of being right, if that makes sense. It does, it does. They talk about, I've heard, the uh, liberal persuasion has sometimes overplayed the, the hand on climate change policy. And that, I think that's sort of what uh, is mentioned that way. Well, I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your hot cognition lab as we're closing. Here you explain what you're doing there. And I know you're reaching out, Peter Ditto, to uh, all levels here in academia, the undergrads, uh, all the way up to your uh, PhD colleagues. So what, what's going on over there? And we'll give you a chance to uh, give people a chance to <laughs> sign uh, sign on on the web and follow what you're doing there. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, my lab, what I've been interested in my whole career is really how people's emotions and preferences and desires bias their judgments. So people think emotionally. So we, we kind of have this image of, of passion and reason and reasons that sort of detached, uh, you know, cold, way of uh, analytically going through information, and I just don't think people do that very well. People's desires and wishes, their prior beliefs, uh, their cultural connections, and you know, all bias the way they think about uh, things. Um, and so in, in lots of different domains, I've done a lot of work on in the medical domain, on, on denial of, of negative medical diagnoses, and now what the lab's really interested in is, is this political, uh, you know, so the best example of kind of emotional thinking, look at our politics, look at the way liberals and conservatives argue, how they never agree on what they see, how, you know, they all seem to be biased in their own direction. That's, you know, it's this really hot uh, process of uh, people defending their views. And so we've been very interested in that, particularly in their moral judgments and how uh, people tend to sort of believe that the things that they think are morally right, they also think are the you know, most practically effective things that they can do for the country. People uh, simply, you have to understand that people think in these emotional ways uh, to really understand how 
you know, to, to look across the aisle, for example, and, and try to understand conservatives. It's people, liberals are tempted to say, oh, gee, those conservatives, they're so dumb. They're dismissive. Well, I, right. I'm, I just want to give everybody a chance to, uh, on www.yourmorals.org or um, the site's uci.edu forward slash Peter Ditto Lab gets you more of this information. My guest for this last part of the show has been Peter Ditto, UCI psychology and social behavior professor who's recently published an article with Sean Vochik called Conservatives Report, but Liberals Display Greater Happiness. It can be read, as I said, in the the March edition of Science Magazine. Uh, Peter Ditto, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks a lot. All right. As I bring this show to close on Ask a Leader, on tap for next week is the ever-enterprising drama chair, Jane Page, in the company of three MFA directors, and they'll return to pick up where she's left off last week with the UCI drama Presents the Shakespeare Shorts Festival. Then we'll hear from local citizens climate change activist Bruce Tierney, who's had some interesting inroads talking with Congresswoman Mimi Walters. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Sihiri pata na sulgi ye man chena chani, ay na.